I believe that when a person wakes up, they have to be impeccable. And so there's ego qualities and there's divine qualities. And the divine qualities would be something like compassion and humility and simplicity and patience and so on and so forth, right? So basically, I would write myself a note that says, are you awake now? And that note would remind me, are you awake going through this situation? And if I'm going through it being fucked up or impatient or, you know, depressed or judgmental, then I'm definitely not awake. But if I ask myself, are you awake? It's a reminder that I can be in that situation in transparency, in patience, in enjoyment, and in appreciation. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Darken the Page. It's a beautiful day here in Pahoa, Big Island, Hawaii, where I've been staying for the last three weeks. I just finished up a conversation with my friend Margot Anand, and I'm really excited to share this with you. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been talking about lately that I've just been enjoying is the chance to actually just to get to sit with people, spend time with them, and then interview them in person, not over Skype, you know, uh, having real, you know, in-person laughs and, and conversations. And uh, this was just a beautiful example of that. Margot and I have actually been hanging out for about a week here in in Hawaii. Um, she's been teaching at a Tantra festival here that I was helping out with. And we just had a great conversation. She has some amazing stories. She talks, talks about... Um, she was a, a Osho's Tantra teacher, or she taught Tantra for Osho's people um, for a while. Uh, that's kind of how she got started. Tells some amazing stories about that, about her latest book, which is called Love, Sex, and Awakening, which you can get on Amazon, which I'll link to in the show notes, which will be under darkenthepage.com slash 062. And... Um, it's a beautiful book about her, the stories from her life, um, and and the the stories of awakening, stories of uh, shadowy things, story, all all sorts of um, wonderful, wonderful stories. So um, yeah, and excited to bring this one to you. Um, still excited about darken the page, doing it about once a month still, although I'm starting to feel inklings of maybe I'm gonna post a little more often. And that's kind of exciting and just been really enjoying it. So thanks for following. Thanks for listening. Um, and if you have any feedback for me, you can always reach me at darkenthepage at gmail.com. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. You can do all that kind of stuff. Um, again, if you've been a fan of this podcast for a while, always love seeing new rating and reviews. Um, and that lets me know that you're out there and that you're enjoying what's happening here. Um, and as always, I appreciate that. And so without further ado, here's my conversation with Margot Anand. Hello, Margot. It's good to be here with you. Welcome to another edition of Darken the Page. Hi, Dave. We already recorded quite a while ago in Bali, and I've always appreciated your 
way that you are with your sort of very practical and yet very inspiring down-to-earth and yet very helpful ideas. So I'm here and I'm very glad to be doing that with you again. Thanks, Margaret. It's good to have you. You're one of a few repeat guests. Wow. Now you're, the, you're, the, you're like maybe there's like four or five people that have been on twice. So you're among a small but elite group. Oh, the coterie, as we say in French. Uh, yes. <laughs> what does coterie mean? Coterie mean is like the private club of the elite, kind of chosen okay. people. Uh, bourgeoisie, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. No, no, it's not bourgeoisie. It's um, Coterie is just like, you know, a special group of people. Okay. You know. Cool, cool. Well, and we're sharing one microphone. We're sitting next to each other. On the couch, I'm actually gonna we're gonna try to get as close as possible that way that we can Ooh, use I this. Like that. This is nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is good. This is tantric uh, interviewing, right? <laughs> this is how this is how we do it. And um, we're here in the Big Island of Hawaii, and we just uh, we just finished um, being part of a tantra festival, and you were teaching at it, and and you have a new book that I think we we talked a little about in the first interview because you were still writing it. Yes. Um, and it's officially published. And it's called Love, Sex, and Awakening. And I think the, you know, besides the fact that I'm just excited for you and anything you publish, I think that I really, I love hearing people really tell personal stories and go through their life in a very, um, uh, you know, revealing in a way that way. revealing way. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Yeah. And, and, and knowing you and knowing how many incredible stories you have, it's been really nice to actually, um, yeah, it's been, it's yeah. been, it's, I'm really glad that you chose to do that. Yeah, um, me too. I, I'm curious why, so, so to give people a little background that you, you've written books like The Art of Sexual Ecstasy and, you, and they're, you've become very, very popular as a teacher, right? So, and then well, you. Well, yeah, but my books also became popular. I think I sold about a million copies of my five or six books and uh, the one that you know was the most popular is the art of sexual ecstasy but there were others the art of sexual magic the art of everyday ecstasy which gives mm -hmm. you a map of the chakras and the behaviors that you can have according to whether your chakra is blocked or whether it's loose and relaxed and um, you know many many other explorations I did so this one uh, is different because yeah. I always wanted to write uh, you know, as a personal, direct experience of my life. Mm -hmm. I have been a journalist earlier on, and I worked for many international magazines, and particularly for Paris Match magazine in France, but that was in their New York bureau. And, um, you know, when you're a journalist, you're sent on the scene. This is how I actually ended up at Woodstock Festival. Uh -huh. And you're sent on the scene and you have to write your story based on your personal direct experience because you cover the subject, but you cover it from you. And this is how your story gets to be good. So I never could do that that well in my other books because my other books were teaching books. So that's what Tantra means. Tantra actually means a teaching module. And so I was teaching methods, I was teaching self-help, I was teaching how do you breathe when you make love and how do you enhance your orgasmic potential. But here I take you backstage. Yeah. And the original reason and motivation why I did that is because 
I thought, wow, what if I don't remember all these stories? <laughs> and I realized one day that I studied at the Sorbonne University and I studied Freud and I studied Marx and I studied Kant and many philosophers. And I asked myself, what is left today in my brain mm -hmm. of all the books I've read and the essays I wrote? And I was appalled to see how little, how little was left. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well you know, I better get down to my pen and paper and write down, you know, what I went through and what did I learn from it? And this is how this book was born. Yeah, yeah. Were you, you know, how how was it recalling, because these, you told stories from when you were, you know, many years ago and probably somewhat recently too, right? Yeah. So how was it tr recalling things that happened, you know, yeah. so long ago? Was yeah, that well, it's interesting, the process, because first of all, you know, the book is like a child and it has to mature. So the first time this book started to kind of show its head was uh, in 2012. And there, under some very interesting circumstances, I got to be sort of, you know, sitting with a professional that was asking me questions and this was recorded and then it was transcribed. So I had a box in my actually it became, you know, digitalized. So then in my computer, I had the equivalent of about 800 pages of transcripts about Margot's life. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought, okay, I can use those. But in fact, that's not what happened. Because once I decided time is now for the book, I first had to write down what were the pregnant stories that really needed to be told. Mm -hmm. Then I had to figure out which language I'm going to write in because I'm totally bilingual, but my original language was French. But I lived mm -hmm. in America for so long and I've, you know, taught in, in English. So I went into a deep meditation sitting at my desk and I thought, okay, which language wants to come forth? Which language is it going to be more easy to write in? And English came, came forth. And this was, was that surprising? A, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, You know, it was a big leap because I remember the first time that I wrote in English was a very interesting story. I was, you know, meeting a wonderful man named Jeremy Tarcher, who was publishing. He was the most respected New Age publisher. Uh, he published a huge bestseller called Women Who Love Too Much. Why women, you know, stay with a man who is abusing them. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he was really a great guy. And so he met me and we spent, you know, two or three days having lunches in Los Angeles and Hollywood together. At the end of which he said to me, okay, I'm satisfied that you are the expert in Tantra that I was looking for. We're going to do a book together. So then he started to go to my very first book, which is Le Chemin de l'Extase in French mm -hmm. and was published by Albin Michel. And we decided we try to translate this one. And in the process of translating it, we realized that this was totally not for the American mindset that it was not going to work in America the way that we are presenting these ideas. So we scratched the translation. Now, tell me something about that. So what is it, what are some things that work in France but wouldn't work in America? I'm just curious. Well, you know, the French book was too um, philosophical. And it was in reference to philosophers and ideas that are not known in America because, you know, people study other things and they're concerned much more about now, whereas France is concerned about its history, its background, you know. It's more interested in these kinds of ideas. Plus, it was written many years ago, 
you know. So mm-hmm. this whole thing that I'm talking about happened, you know, maybe 30 years ago or 20 years ago. So think times change, yeah. you know. But at that time, we just felt like we had to address the question in a much more practical way and in a much more now way because the original book had three parts. Uh, the life story, the practices, and the philosophical considerations. Mm-hmm. And actually... I would say in French, it's the best book I wrote. It's extremely well written, and I wrote it directly in French. Yeah. And But now, you know, I'm in America, and I, I do like this country a lot. And yeah, it's uh, different times, you know, different considerations, much more immediate, much more based and rooted on your experience now, yeah. much more tell what you're going through now, not what so-and-so said two centuries ago, yeah. you know. What, what do you like about America? And I feel like this question is particularly relevant recently because of all the craziness we've been going through with the inauguration. But I'm just curious, having experienced different cultures, what, is something, what are some things you like about American culture? Well, you know, I was paranoid about America for quite some years. I thought, you know, I, it was actually Bush Jr. that was like really, really getting under my skin. <laughs> and when Bush Jr. Uh, declared the war against Iraq, I thought, okay, that's it. That tops it. I'm leaving. And in fact, I left with two suitcases in hand to move to Bali. That's all? Just two suitcases? Yeah, wow, two that's suitcases. Good. <laughs> well, you know, you don't want to talk about my storage unit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, because I, I seem to have a kind of a political soul. And if I live in a political regime that I really feel is over the top and, you know, it's really too much, then I can't stand it. You know, I have to go. So I stayed in that vein for five years. Nothing to do with America. And then my friends kicked my ass and said, in Bali that is, you know, stop this paranoia. America's great. So I thought, okay, I'll stop the paranoia, you know, and I'll step back. I'll go back. So I went back and I actually was very surprised to see that the guy at the immigration counter when I was coming in, was telling me, you know, was asking me where do you come from? I, I come from Bali. I retired in Bali. Oh, he says Bali. And he starts a conversation with me about Bali that he wants to go to Bali. And here he is, this immigration officer, you know, forgets to photograph my eyeballs or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so Bali was my magic word. Everywhere I went when I wanted to reinsert myself in the American system, you know, which I did, was talking about Bali. Everybody was more and interested talking Bali. about Bali than to talk about administration, you know. Yeah. So anyway, so I had a great time, you know, and I now I'm back here. And I have to say, I just love this country. And I have to say that no matter what's going on, it's still, you know, on the leading edge of things. And the people, when, when people in this country get with their technical know-how about how to do things, you know, and how to bring in a new idea and how to receive and be interested in a new idea. And on top of that, they add a spiritual awakening component of wanting to be a seeker and to wake up and to understand the higher dimensions of life and to transcend. Man, you know, there's nobody better than an American, you know? And, um, Americans are ready to open themselves up to new ideas. You know, they're, they're the guy who walks in and says, oh, 
you know, I'll learn how to do that. You know, I'm going to be able to build a house. I'm going to be able to do whatever. You're a good example of it, uh-huh. you know. And we, the French, you know, we lag behind. We need go-betweens that are going to do things for us. Yeah. And we think that we That's don't know. because you spend so much time eating, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Which is That's wonderful. I, yeah. I, 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 did a, I did a three-month bicycle trip through Europe uh, like five years ago. And we uh, spent a week bicycling with, uh, four people three of them were from France one of them from, from Belgium and it was so amazing because I really got to see how terrible an eater I am you know they would they would they would stop and they would put out I mean you're carrying things on a bicycle so they brought like a tablecloth and things yeah. like that and they would put it down and then they would eat and slowly and they would eat all these delicious foods and they'd feed each other yeah. and meanwhile I ate in like two minutes and I was yeah. like ready to get back on the bicycle and I just thought man I need to really look at this because this yeah. is I like this I like the way they're living here and that was nice yeah, yeah. it's, it's uh, you know <laughs> sitting at the table is a whole ritual yeah. and uh, it's still going on and when I come to Paris I have a delightful man in my life who you know is a very French Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we, we create lunches and dinners where we just have the pleasure of inviting our friends. Yeah. And it's a ritual, you know, the table, how the table is set up and how the wine fits the food. And, and when we are together in Paris, we always go to my favorite restaurant, which is La Coupole, mm-hmm. which I recommend. Yeah. You know, great seafood. Mm-hmm. Anyway. <clears throat> So, yes, I definitely appreciate good food. That's for sure. But yeah. here, you have incredible health food stores. You know, now they're coming to France. They're happening in France, too. But, you know, the food here can be great if yeah. you just know how to choose it. And, uh, however, you know, I would say the environment is really not so great. You know, I don't like sitting in a diner. and It's all plastic. And it's, you know, I like to go to a delicious restaurant where, you know, there is velvet couches and you know where it's low lights and it's a bit romantic and it's quiet and you have a waiter that comes and takes your orders you know and he has a costume and you know yeah. he does his job well i like that yeah you know? yeah that's that's real. i was in italy this last year and it was interesting because they had also they were starting to understand the new health trends let's yeah. say and they were starting to look at things like gluten-free but but they were they were using this kind of a, the italian way of looking things which was this insistence on quality ingredients yeah like really 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 important to them yeah and it was great because then they would they would be able to still create these dishes to meet the needs of people health who conscious are gluten-free people. health conscious people but it was still just yeah, amazing. They're just you know the they was they would just do it in an Italian way that that was just so wonderful and and also they you know they made a good point which is one of the things that that I was visiting a farm and this woman who's been working there and making food for a long time, you know she said that part of the reason we have a lot of these allergies is because we don't really eat the 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 quality food exactly. You know, I want like, to tell you something about like that. Like the bread, for example, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm in Bali and I'm in a restaurant with a dear dear friend, <clears throat> and I have this habit. Bali has great food too. Yeah, which is very surprising. Right, I was really loved that. Yeah. Well, Balinese people want to make business, and they are very good at copying everything yeah. that comes through. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. So I was, you know, having I I ordered a vegetable curry, 
for vegetarians, you know. And they bring a bowl and it's spicy vegetal, vegetables floating in lentils and rice. Mm -hmm. And I always do a, a very short prayer. Uh, I put my hands above my food. You know, I thank, you know, the angels and the earth for bringing this good food. I send light into my food and then I eat. Yeah. This is, you know. So I bless my food and uh, my friend doesn't do that. So my friend eats his food. Uh, same bowl, same order. Mm -hmm. And the next day I get a call. I have the bali belly. I'm totally sick. I say, hey, wait a minute. We ate the same thing exactly on the menu. Yeah. And I figured out that probably the only reason why I didn't get the bali belly is because I blessed my food. Because what else are you going to think? You know, it was the same food. Yeah. So anyway, I, I believe that blessing your food is a good thing. Is that, a, is that you think that's a French thing too? Or is no. it just like no, the French people? No, do they it's, do that? It's, it's my Margot. Margot, spiritual Margot thing. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, I think that creating a little ritual for things is part of creating a transition, which brings me back to my book because I did a ritual sitting at my desk and meditating, um, you know, to choose my language. Yeah. And okay, so then I decided I do it in English. So yeah. then this was a commitment. Yeah. And plus, I wanted to work with an editor that's a friend of mine who's helped me in the past. And so I had hired, I uh, know I then hired an editor friend of mine who's a writer. And so I would send him my chapter. He would look it over, correct it, send it back. And sometimes we had 10 passes per mm -hmm. chapter before we were satisfied that it was a good text. Yeah. You know, so... Um, that's that's how the book was born. And then, to my great surprise, uh, the stories that came, uh, I hardly went back to the recordings that I had done in 2012 and that were in my computer. I just had the story, I wrote the story, and then I referred back to, you know, the recording to see whether there were any details that were juicy and that were relevant to the story I had written now. But in fact, not very much. And the reason why is because I wrote these stories that happened sometimes 30 years ago when I discovered what led me to Tantra, you know, or mm -hmm. I, I received an initiation that opened a window in my brain to show me, aha, that's a potential that humanity hasn't really explored in the West yet. Mm -hmm. You know, and my dedication was to eradicate sexual ignorance from the planet, mm -hmm. you know, because I believe that all of our problems stem from sexual ignorance. Yeah, A lot I, to would be agree said with, about I would that. agree with that. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> so the story that I wrote, even though it happened a long time ago, actually was written in the now uh, mode. You know, as if it was happening now. <laughs> and it's alive. And um, I take the reader backstage to show how I discovered Tantra. You know, yeah. so yeah. that's how yeah. it happened. I'm curious about, I want to have you, I want to, I want to uh, have you tell one of the stories, but I also, when you said rituals, you talked about the rituals that you had, the ritual that you used to, to figure out which language you'd want to write yeah. in. Um, are there any other rituals that you have around writing? Like yes. when you sit down to yes. write, when yes. you finish, maybe t tell me about, I'm really curious about those. Yeah. So at the time when I decided to write this book, I was in a very lucky situation because uh, basically I have a house in Bali uh, by the sea, very beautiful, all feng shui built, you know, according to my specs. And um, I have a nice uh, team of people that are working there uh, from the neighboring, the, ne the next village, Balinese people from the next village. And so they come and they cook and they shop and they do, you know, they help. Yeah. So... 
So I basically, you know, called my team and I said, guys, I'm going to write a book now. So uh, this is the this is the schedule of the day and this is when you bring the food and the rest of the time just don't come too much and don't make too much noise. And basically there, there it was. I was completely served. I didn't have to go shop. I didn't have to go cook. I didn't have to do anything except write and do yoga and meditate mm-hmm. uh, and, and hang out with my friends. So that was the perfect setup to write a book. Yeah. But then my ritual is this. I have an office and it's all in wood um, and it opens up on my garden and <coughs> I have to clean my office absolutely tip top. No, nothing, you know, no mess lying around, mm. number one. Number two, it has to smell good. So I burn, you know, incense or I burn essential oils in a essence burner. Then I have to be looking, you know, all my senses have to be pleased. So I'm looking at the tonka of Buddha Zampola, which I picked up in Nepal or in Bhutan. What's and, a tonka? And a tonka is a, a painting uh, done in the Asiatic countries, uh, a, a Buddhist painting representing a divinity. Mm-hmm. And um, that particular painting represented a Buddha uh, who was holding mangoose, which are sort of looking like... Uh, mangoose is you know it's an animal that goes above the earth or in the water uh, and I think digs under the earth and it's um, was holding um, nuts and in those Asiatic countries these animals are tantamount to representing uh, abundance Mm -hmm. so the mangoose was holding tons of nuts and the nuts were pouring down from the arms of the Buddha. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, the Tonka for Abundance, which is actually hanging in the entrance of every person's uh, house in Bhutan Mm -hmm. and also in the temples. Oh, cool. So I have this this Abundance Buddha there in my office. And um, so I can look at him uh, when I write. Yeah. And then behind me is a painting of uh, the uh, Thousand Hand Yogini, who has her hands with an eye inside her hands, which means conscious action. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a thousand hands mean multitasking, consciously multitasking. Mm-hmm. And so that is a symbol for opening your brain to tons of ideas and, you know, choosing which idea and then writing it down. Yeah. So the ritual is creating a nice environment. Yeah, and then pleasing cre- all your senses. Yes. I really like that. That's yeah. really nice. Yeah. yeah. And then... Um, you know, then making sure that you create a schedule where you're not disturbed. Mm -hmm. And so the phone is out, no phone. Um, No internet. No internet, turn off the internet. And this is uh, necessary because if I don't do that, then every three minutes I have an idea about someone and I have to interrupt my writing and I have to go to the internet and write an email to that someone. Right. And this is, you know, distracting and it's not having the kind of discipline that you need to go deep into your writing. So yeah. for me, I turn it off. Yeah. And uh, and I want to say here that, you know, I did do a spiritual retreat with a friend of mine who's a great meditator uh, a while ago. And for one month, there was no speaking, no writing, no telephoning, no internet, um, and no reading. So it was silence 100% and going deep inside yourself. You'd be surprised what you find inside yourself. We forget that we have an inside. We're so caught into the outside. Mm -hmm. So just as an aside, 
you know yeah. i think that the world should meditate more yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's because writing is also a form of meditation you know you go deep inside yourself and you you dig out you know whatever is coming out so yeah yeah do you have any rituals around um when you take a break or when you finish for the day or anything like that with the writing or i have to be careful because i get into a trance Mm -hmm. And then I forget that I have a body. I'm all in the head thinking mm -hmm. and writing. And then it's not good for me. So I have to get up once in a while, walk in the garden, you know, drink, drink more. Um, but Do you just drink water? Do you have a particular thing you like to drink? Uh, I love coffee. Yeah. yeah. So you have a limit? Do you limit yourself to like two cups maybe? Or do you say like... Yeah, stop? I try not to drink coffee after four in the afternoon. Otherwise, I don't sleep. Yeah. And um, we, we drink, we prepare a jamu in my house and in Bali. A jamu is a medicinal drink, which um, we grow the plants in my garden. So uh, turmeric is a basic one, the orange powder. Mm -hmm. That's uh, very good for anti-inflammatory, um, antioxidant. And then we have other plants. So I don't know their Balinese name, but they're good for the kidney and they're good for elimination. And my staff prepares a kind of a mixture in the morning and I start with that my day mm -hmm. that's really nice yeah and it's all grown on your property yeah too, which is yeah. really cool yeah, yeah 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 that's great yeah and so you get around get up and walk around I think that's important because it's you know I always find that if I'm you know if I go too long without a break then I notice that I start what I produce is not as good but then I just I forget and then I get up and oh this is, feels good and then yeah. I can walk around yeah. and then I come back and I feel refreshed right. and that's important. Yeah, and then we have to remember that our brain functions and feeds itself on glucose and sugar. It uses a lot of it in any case. So we have to find healthy ways of, you know, feeding the brain too. Yeah. You know. So do you have some particular foods you like when you write like to feed the brain? No, I just try to eat healthy and vegetarian and I couldn't say. I, I'm not someone who's very disciplined, funnily yeah. enough, after saying what I said. Yeah. Um, I, I do one discipline at a time. If I'm writing, okay, that's all my disciplines are around that. But yes, I do have a particular drink, coconut. Oh, coconut water. Yeah. Coconut yeah. water, because we have lots of coconuts around my property in Bali. Yeah. And so, you know, I get coconut water in the morning, coconut water at lunchtime, coconut water in the dinner, yeah. because it's very good for you and it's the purest, uh, you know, drink you can get. It's, yeah. you know, from a plant high in a tree, not exposed to anything mm -hmm. and, and completely closed by its shell so it cannot pick up any pollution. Yeah. So it's really great. It's great. Yeah. So I'm... You know, one of the things that is is really um, I just enjoy being around you, and you have um, you have so many wonderful stories. You know, you spent, and I've always I I I you know before I met you, I I would I studied some things from Osho, and that was guys pretty cool. And then and then here you are, like you know, you have like these wealths of stories and all these things. Um, I'm curious if if um, you know if you had any experiences and I guess maybe if it's related to writing, but maybe not, or maybe like your favorite, if you could tell, okay. Oh, this I have, is the story. I have a great story related to writing. Oh, with cool. Osho. Oh, sure. Let's do that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so when I wrote my first book, at least my first Tantra book, because I wrote one before as a journalist, but let's forget that. Uh -huh. Um, the first time I wrote the manuscript, it was under the influence of my publisher in Paris, who was telling me how they wanted the book. So then I realized later on that that wasn't my book. It was, you know, a book written under the influence. 
So I threw the manuscript out of the window. Uh-huh. Then, literally, did you literally throw it out the window? Kind of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then uh, I got married. I was very much in love, and now you know I was having a loving husband who was sitting next to me in my writing room, and I wrote the second manuscript under the influence again because now it was the influence of love my drugs, husband. Yeah. So still I was seeing that, reading the manuscript, and still I wasn't finding my voice. This is good writing is about finding your own unique voice, right? Mm-hmm. So then I went to India and I met Osho. And Osho didn't, Osho is a great mystic and an awakened master, for those who don't know. And he was called Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, and his name that he wanted to be called by later on was Osho. Notwithstanding all the bad stories about his Rolls Royces, which he created on purpose to push everybody's buttons, this guy was an extraordinary teacher. Anyway, to me, he was very helpful. So I got to see him and, you know, he didn't know much about my writing. At least I thought so. But I sit in front of him in a private meeting and he looks at me and he says, go write your book. So I go, okay, how does he know I'm writing a book? But, you know, I loved him and I was studying with him, so I listened. So now starts the fact that it seems like this master has put a spell on me because I'm going into silence. I'm not talking to people. I go to the discourses he gave in the morning and then I go back to my house behind the ashram and I'm in silence and I sit in front of the white page because in those days I was still doing writing by hand and I had an assistant who came and typed it up in a typewriter. That's Mm -hmm. how I started. So, sorry. Um, so I sit in front of the white page and now I'm going, okay, this time it's going to be my voice. It's going to be nobody else's voice. And there's Osho behind there who is insisting on, you know, authenticity mm-hmm. and giving, giving a voice to your soul. The man is deep, you know. Yeah. So I'm sitting there. I'm going, okay, well, what do I have to say? And then I go into a total complex about I have nothing to say and I don't know how to say it and, you know, I'm never going to find myself. And, you know, it's a real dig, <laughs> dig deep kind of spiritual process, you know. You have to confront your demons. Yeah. So now starts this amazing process where I write one line, okay. You could compare this process to working with a Zen koan. Because this is what it became. Mm. The first line of my book. And it becomes this totally important thing. This becomes like, okay, if a person, you know, who might want to buy my book reads the first line, they have to be totally enthralled by the first line. Mm -hmm. So, believe it or not, I spent six hours a day for one or two months, I forget, writing line number one. The first phrase of my book. Yeah. Every word permutation, using the same word, placing them differently in the phrase, adding one word. Well, maybe that's not the right word. I have to find another word. I went on and on and on, and I was blocked to write anything else until I found the perfect phrase, or and the perfect phrase became my Zen koan. I, I, was, I could so relate to that. Yeah. I feel better now because I've spent so much time doing that, and I feel like you spending six weeks, six hours, thats that makes me feel better about myself. Yeah. For having spent a lot of time on that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's how you become a good writer, you know? Yeah. You have to confront your demons and you have to trust yourself enough to open your window to inspiration, you yeah. know, and let the muse, you know, come through. Because some people would say, oh, that's, you know, you're being too perfectionist. 
you know, that's, you know, but, but it, it, that's, hey, you know, sometimes that unlocks something. Yes. You really get excited. You know, it's like, it's for me, if I get, if I have a title for an article and, the, and I'm so excited about the title, the article will get written. Yes. It's just, it's already done. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, like I just wrote one um, called the, the Fetish of Consistency. Oh, and thought, great. What? And it was actually, that's, uh, Gandhi had said that, but uh, that, as a title for an article, I just thought that is an amazing title. Yes. So of course the article got written and, and it's the same thing with the opening line too. Like that, if you have a, such an exciting opening line, it can carry you your momentum throughout the whole yeah, book. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, I did that until uh, Osho called me. I said, I wrote him and I said, oh, you know, it's a lonely process writing this book. You know, I'm in silence. I see nobody. I'm with the white page all day. So he said, come see me. So I went to see him. And then to my great surprise, he told me I had to lead the first Tantra groups that were offered in the ashram. So I was like totally, you know, like flabbergasted. Me? I didn't want to be leading Tantra groups. I was maybe the only group leader in the ashram who didn't want to lead the Tantra group. <laughs> so, you know, that was a whole other process that then developed. And I wrote my book parallel. And then I realized he gave me a great gift because I was writing about Tantra. You know, and he called me and he said, look, forget about all the scriptures, forget about all the other what the other people wrote and said about Tantra. Here with me, it's live Tantra now. It's what you're going to be going through now in my presence and with the people you're with. That is the real Tantra. So I thought, wow, you know, this is true. Tantra now. You know, yeah. and so then he gave me these groups to lead, and I said, "Well, I I'm not a tantra group leader. I don't even know how to do it." You know, I'm a Western trained psychologist, and then he said, laughing, "Well, if you don't know what to do, close your eyes, call me in, and I'll lead the group through you." So here I was trying to find my own voice, and I had this joker of a guru who was telling me, "Well, if you don't know what to do, I'll do it for you. Just call me in." Yeah. So now it was him again. So it was me lending my voice to someone else so that they can speak through me, so to speak. Yeah. So anyway, I was mulling this over and uh, struggling with my first and second groups, and then I realized he gave me a gift, which is a laboratorium in which I can explore. Tantra from here now, where are people at? What are they going through? You know, and do they love each other? Do they hate each other? What is it that they have to get off their system before they can even consider what sexuality is about? So mm -hmm. anyway, it was great. Yeah. You know, so I was writing my book, leading the Tantra groups and having a wonderful boyfriend with whom I could practice all these things. Yeah. So it was a perfect setup. And to this day, I'm grateful because this is how I developed, you know, everything that I'm about. At least it was the roots of it. Yeah. Yeah. Wh which book was that that you had the first line for? It was... Um, and do you remember the line, what the line was? Uh, it was... Um, I think it was Le Chemin de l'Extase, if I'm not mistaken. Or was it the art of... No, I think it was the art of sexual ecstasy. The one that became... Uh, published in America. Uh -huh. Yeah, that one that became a bestseller. And did you, and so I'm curious what the first line was, and I'm curious if you, because I'm guessing you wrote the book in French, right? You, originally you wrote it in French? I did. Yeah, and, I'm, and I'm, get, I'm curious if you if you liked the translation of the first line. 
in wait, English. Wait, wait, wait. Now I'm getting that. it. No, it was the book that never got published in America. It was Le Chemin de l'Extase that I was writing and rewriting. Uh, okay. So it's not The Art of Sexual Ecstasy. It's another book that was not published in America called Le Chemin de l'Extase. That's the one we tried to translate and didn't manage. Uh -huh. And that became The Art of Sexual Ecstasy written for Americans directly in English. It was my first book written directly in English. Uh, okay. So in the ashram in India, I was writing the book that never got published in America, which is Le Chemin de l'Extase. And what was, what was the first line? Do you remember? I don't remember. Oh, no. That's oh, one man. of them so curious oh, God, now. Okay. But you were happy with it after yeah. that. You, yeah. when you, you found a place where you were happy with it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What was, uh, what oh, was, wow. the, what that, was the first line have in it? this one? Oh, okay, uh, let's go. We're opening Love, Sex, and Awakening now to look and see if we can find the first line. So the first line, so the chapter title is Virgin Revelation. Yeah. And the first line is, for the first time in my life, I was dancing in the arms of a prince. Uh, I like that. And then it says, but he was not my prince. But he was not my I prince. I like that. Already, already, already the yeah. dun, dun, dun. <laughs> The orchestra was playing a waltz and the violins surrounded the dancers with romantic crescendos. But this romance was not for me. Mm. I love so now, that. Yeah. Now you get engaged, okay? Right. Like, that's, that's, what's happening? Why is she why, in this why perfect is, setup? You know, you know, and she doesn't doesn't want to go there. She doesn't want to play the game because, yeah. you know, that's not for her. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that's great. So anyway. Yeah, there's a you know the the uh, something I do on as uh, as a writer too is is copywriting, and I always find that the copywriter in me is is very excited about those those things that that open curiosity in people's minds that draw them in yeah. you know and that's that's great yeah and i think it's so important i think that's one something as a writer that that we take for granted which is the ability to hold someone's attention you know or putting putting emphasis on that you know yeah. we think they we think oh they should they should read you know they should read it but it's like no it's like our responsibility to yes to have be captivating and, yes. and to draw people in and and then you know get them from the next line to the next line to the next page to the next chapter and yeah. just take and, them and this you know? is, this is what i'm very grateful to peter wait who is my editor because he reminded me that to be good and to be enticing a story has to have a plot and has to have a point of drama in it so that you know people are interested to read and find out how did she resolve that one and how did she untie that knot you know mm -hmm. and so for instance here is a, a chapter on tantra the shadow and the light and this is about the sexual abuses and other kinds of you know shenanigans that happen in the field of tantra today yeah you know and so i start with this is a quote from someone speaking yeah okay and it says I paid the training fees and I came here because I trusted you as a teacher, colleague and therapist. And then you fucked my woman. Is that what I paid for? Yeah, that's, it draws you in. You're like, wait, that that happened? That she's going to get real here. You know? yeah. She's going to tell yeah. you what's up. Yeah. And Frederick was angry, very angry. A Swiss psychiatrist, he had signed on for the love and ecstasy training with his attractive partner, Adele. And then he discovered she had made love with Aman, my co-leader. Mm. Okay. So now, you know, this is the whole drama, you yeah. know, because a leader doesn't make love with a participant. At least we have that as our ethical code. Yeah. And this leader, this co-leader was my lover, my partner. And we had a total agreement that, you know, he was not going to be going with a participant. This uh -huh. was a given. And it always, we always respected that. 
you yeah. know. So now comes the drama, you know, the whole thing unfolds. And mm-hmm. then that leads us into, it segues into what actually happens in all these Tantra groups, you know, mm-hmm. do they have any ethical considerations and which are they and how does it work and, you know, what. So then I look for the remedies and I find that the Buddha gave teachings about that. And Thich Nathan, the enlightened monk that lives in France, gave teachings about that. And even the Dalai Lama gave teachings about that. So I quote all of these people, you know, and I give what remedies I found in my own life. Mm-hmm. So that's that chapter. I'm curious. So one of the things with memoirs that always comes up for people is is confidentiality. And can I write about certain people and how much can I reveal about other people's lives? You know, you can reveal your life, right? But yeah. but like that Aman, for example, like how... How did you negotiate that, or is he, you know that is he still was, around, or how does that? You yeah, know? well, that was a whole process. Let me tell you, <laughs> you know, because American publishers are very conscious about legality, even more than in other countries. Because I'm published, this book is published in many countries already. Yeah, but so they requested, they they sent me a form that was a legal form, you know, and that was required for every hero of every one of my chapters. They had to sign the form. Uh, on paper, scan it, send it back to them, to the publisher, and then I had to send the the written paper, you know, the the original. And it was only after that was done uh, that we were allowed, that I was allowed to publish the story. And in some cases, uh, and I'm not going to tell you which, but Mm -hmm. in some cases I had to radically change the story. I kept the gist of the story, but I changed the person. Yeah. So the you person, the name? I changed the name, yeah. I changed the race, I changed the color, I changed the job that they were holding, but yeah. the actual story that happened to me, no, I didn't change that. Right, right. And that was only in one case. And um, the other cases, I they wanted me to change the name, but keep the story, that was okay. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, they said, they everybody, of course, read the chapter that concerned them. So they had to read the chapter and say, yes, I'm okay to appear as myself in my name. Mm-hmm. And other people said, okay, I will appear as myself, but you took, you take that name, you know, and not my name that I have today, you yeah. know, so. To what extent do like, so if, let's say you have someone who just does not want to play ball at all. Someone who says, I just don't, I want nothing. Like, can you still use that, but then change everything? And is there a point where they can't stop that? Yes, you can. Yeah. And I did that in one of my yeah. chapters. <laughs> okay. <laughs> cool. Because <laughs> that's something I always wondered about that, you know. But I guess to some extent, you know, like, let's say, you know, if you're talking about, uh, you know, oh, in, in the 70s and the partner that I taught with for 10 years, yes. that would be easy to find yes, out. Yes, yes, right? yes. Like that's, right. That's, that's, that stuff is, yeah, even no, you though can. you could change the name, that's there. You could easily yeah, learn you have, that if yeah, you Yeah, you have to be very crafty. You know, and I consulted my American lawyer and for the American edition, and I consulted my French lawyer for the French edition, mm-hmm. you know, and they gave me what the law says in these respective countries. And basically the law says that um, if there is any way in which the person can be recognized, uh, you know, because their family is quoted or their name is quoted or a particular episode is quoted, then, you know, they have a right to attack you for uh, what's the word? Dam- uh, damages, I guess. Yeah, or you know. For, you. Yeah. yeah. So, but if, um, if there is no way that, you know, the person can be recognized, if their name isn't used, if their likeness isn't used, if their photo isn't used, um, then they can't, they can't do it, you know. So I had to be, 
I have to be very careful. But yeah. actually, I was helped by the gods because, you know, I mean, in the end, there was one chapter where I thought, if he doesn't sign the paper, you know, I'm really up the creek because then I have to rewrite, I had to cancel the story. Yeah, you know? and you really, it was a good story. Yeah, really and, and the one, book yeah. was written, uh, you know, it, yeah. was, it was constructed. There was a, you know, there was a logical to each chapter leading to the next story, leading to the next story. Uh -huh. So anyway, they... They read the changed chapter, and they said, "Fine, now it's okay." Was there were there some people that you were surprised that they were just okay with it? Yes. Yeah, that's always nice. Right? The hero <laughs> of chapter nine. Yeah. Yeah, the hero of chapter nine who completely agreed that his name would be kept, and you know. And now the funny thing is that I'm invited to give a lecture and present my book in uh, the town. Well, I can say it. Uh, Boulder, Colorado, okay. Okay. right? Yeah. And uh, that's where this hero, my hero, lives there yeah. and is teaches this, there. Is Ken Wilber your hero? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> no. And uh, so, uh, so now he lives in Boulder and I'm invited to present a book in Boulder and he's the hero of Chapter 9. So... Uh -huh. We're contacting him and we're asking him, do you want to appear with Margot in the, you know, presentation of the book, mm -hmm. you know, as being the hero of the story on chapter nine? Well, you know, he's he's depicted, you know, as a real hero. I mean, he's, good. he's depicted in a very positive oh, sense. Oh, that's nice. You know? Yeah, that's great. So his male ego will certainly, you know, be very happy with that chapter. Of course. You know? Yeah, that's important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 And that's men, good. men in general in my book are, you know... Um, very well depicted there. My gratitude to all to these wonderful tantric partners is expressed over and over again. Yeah. That you know, I had wonderful men in my life. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I, I I imagine that that you're very good at that, and you're really appreciative of that. And I appreciate that. Yeah, right. tantra can lead you to really ecstatic spaces, you know. And yeah. I was telling the world from get go that uh, I wasn't interested in marrying and making children. I was interested in being with a tantric partner to practice Tantra and to teach it and to discover new angles and new dimensions. So, you know, I, I was a good manifester and I usually have a wonderful partner that manifested. Yeah. Always helping. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So are you, you here? You too, here yeah. I am. That's right. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a lot easier to do with two people, and the other yeah. person is very important. Yeah, and you know, we're we're here to help one another, and uh, so many people are totally delighted to be able to wake the world up to you know whatever the potential that we have is. You know, we have such a great potential in our sexuality, and most of the people don't know about it, and they don't go there. They don't, you know, it's like. It's like someone, you know, like me with computers, you know. I, I use a computer the way you would use a deux chevaux in France, you know, mm -hmm. like an old rickety thing that barely drives you somewhere. Yeah. And actually, I have a Cadillac, you know, and I can do everything. I watch you handle your, you know, internet <laughs> and your computer. Oh, my God, we just shot a movie and instantly the movie was edited and instantly it was sent to someone. Yeah. It would take me days to be able to figure that one out. Yeah. You know, so, you know, we need help. We need yeah. people that know what the potential is to guide us along the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I want to ask you the, the question I ask at the end of um, every episode. And I had asked you this a couple years ago when we talked in Bali. But, um, you know, if you were to write yourself a note and you were to send it back through time and you could you could send it to yourself at any point, maybe maybe at the beginning of, of deciding to write this book and maybe when you uh, sat down in that blank page uh, after Osha said, go write your book, um, what would you say to yourself if you could, if you could just speak to that 
person okay, back so then. Okay, so let me just give you a little preamble. Sure. Um, I believe that when a person wakes up, they have to be impeccable. And so there's ego qualities and there's divine qualities. And the divine qualities would be something like compassion and humility and simplicity and patience and so on and so forth, right? And so, um, so basically, I would write myself a note that says, are you awake now? And that note would remind me, are you awake going through this situation? And if I'm going through it being fucked up or impatient or you know, depressed or judgmental, then I'm definitely not awake. But if I ask myself, are you awake? It's a reminder that I can be in that situation in transparency, in patience, in enjoyment, and in appreciation, mm -hmm. you know? And so that would be my note. Are you awake now? Yeah, yeah. What does it mean? This is a follow-up question now. Well, what does it mean for you to be awake? To be awake, well, I the last chapter in my book is called Awakening, mm -hmm. okay? And the awakening happened when I was sitting in meditation on my bed and I heard a sound, something like this, you know, once. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and all of a sudden, my life was changed forever. And all of a sudden, any resentment, any anger, any contraction in any one of my chakras or energy centers... Um, my mind, everything was erased as if the hand of God had come and erased the blackboard. And I was completely flabbergasted. I was like left with no eye. There was nobody there. And so I pinched myself and I, you know, asked the question. I said, this is extraordinary. And then I heard an inner voice that said, no, it's very ordinary. And, um, and it said something like, well, you know, uh, who am I? And then the voice answered, nobody, you're nobody, there's nobody here. And now I understood what is total transparency, you know, that in fact, when your ego, your personality, your mind, your thoughts are not here, what is left is a total transparency to what truly is. And then your higher self or you know, whatever you want to call it, can download directly what is the best for you. And so I went out in the street in this new dimension of awakenness and I saw auras around flowers and I went around the corner of the street. It was in India and I met the Chaiwala who is the Baba making the chai and I looked in his face and I never had seen him like that. I saw every line in his face and what every line spoke a language and said something about what he went through in his life. And I so appreciated his chai and I tasted it in a new way. And he was so happy to see me tasting his chai. Mm -hmm. Everything was upgraded to a new vibrational level. Mm -hmm. That was what awakening, how it happened. Mm -hmm. That's know? beautiful. Yeah. that's. I love how you describe that. It's mm -hmm. just... You're such a wonderful storyteller, and I just so appreciate the time we get to spend together. Me too. Yeah. I really appreciate you. you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Um, if you haven't listened to episode 22, which was my original conversation with Margot, you might also like that. Um, and you can go find that at darkonthepage.com slash 022, or you can go to iTunes 
and you know thanks again for listening if you uh, if you can uh, write a little rating or review uh, for dark in the page I would appreciate that uh, you can send me an email say what's up uh, dark the page at gmail.com um, if you have any suggestions for guests people that I might want to interview I'll be in the Los Angeles area and San Diego area <clears throat> for the next couple months and um, happy to meet with them and talk about that kind of stuff so Thanks for listening, and until next time, go make great art.